Welcome to the Grad School Femme Touring Podcast. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Vu, and I will be serving as your Femme Tour, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into graduate school. For the past 10 years, I've been helping undergraduate students get into top graduate programs in their field, and I'm really excited to share this information with you too. All right, we are ready to get started. Welcome everyone. I'm really excited. We have another guest speaker. And uh, today our speaker is gonna be talking to us all about navigating burnout during your journey to a PhD, an immigrant's perspective with Dr. Gina Vanegas. So I'll get started with reading Dr. Gina's bio. Dr. Gina Vanegas, who uses pronouns she, her, is a Latinx bilingual psychology postdoctoral fellow and qualitative researcher and <laughs> experienced speaker. She immigrated from Colombia at 16 years old and became the first person in her family to receive a PhD. She is passionate about contributing to the self-empowerment of underrepresented communities by sharing her training in the area of social justice and psychology and by engaging in advocacy efforts to deconstruct systemic barriers. Welcome to the podcast, Gina, or Dr. Gina. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to chat a little bit more about this topic yeah. and to have an opportunity to also tell my story. So I appreciate you creating this space. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to have you on, especially because you're someone I know, you're someone that I you know, greatly respect. Um, for the for the listeners, they don't know our relationship. We worked together with, you know, in the UCSB McNair program. And I recall just how comfortable the students were with you, how much they reached out to you, just what a, an amazing resource uh, and support, you know, you were to them. So I think that that will only kind of um, continue to kind of spread through the listeners and anybody else who you come into contact. So I'm excited for you to share a little bit more about yourself, about your background and your journey to the PhD. So feel free to share whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you for that lovely intro. And yes, I, I, um, I was so appreciative of being able to work with you too through the McNair office. It was just um, such a lovely experience. And I'll talk a little bit about the role that McNair had in my life because it really was such a helpful resource for me in so many different ways. But I guess to like start, um, yeah. So I came to the US when I was 16 years old and everybody's immigration story is unique. Um, what is unique about mine is that I came because I wanted to come. I actually convinced my parents and begged them to come to the US because my dream was to graduate from a university in the US. And so that's that's a little unique. <laughs> I had no idea, actually. <laughs> that's yeah. so interesting. Okay, I'll let you keep going. <laughs> no, and um, you know, I think that shaped a lot about the way we kind of um, got introduced to the US and American culture. Um, I did speak um, some English before coming to the U.S. Um, there were a lot of things that I still needed to work on grammar-wise, pronunciation-wise. To this day, I still get cold on, on my accent. There is so many um, factors that I was still kind of learning. And um, when we immigrated, we immigrated to Atlanta, Georgia, which 
we actually immigrated to a small suburb of Atlanta and that also kind of shaped my experience or my first years in the U.S. So this lovely dream that I had um, in my mind, in reality, was nothing like what I was expecting. And it quickly dissipated within like six months. Um, and I say that because sometimes um, the geographical areas that we kind of immigrate to or kind of what you've shared before, like the programs that you choose have such an impact on your experience. And so that certainly was the case for me. Um, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist in my teens and I didn't know how long it was gonna take and it's taking a long time. Um, I'm still in that process. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's a wonderful field but it definitely has had a lot of work and a lot of tears and a lot of just um, persistence. And so, um, you know, I think it's important to, to kind of consider as immigrants and as first gens, um, the idea of energy, how do we create energy? How do we keep energy? How do we not waste energy? How do we um, maintain our energy? Um, and, you know, because I immigrated at 16 years old, I did my last two um, years of high school and in the US. And so there was a oh, really wow. deep learning curve of like, I didn't even know what the SATs were. Um, so what did you expect? Cause I know you said earlier that, you know what you dreamt was very different from the actual reality. So you arrive to the US and you are a teenager in high school. You gotta finish up high school. What did you think school would be like versus what it actually was like? You know, I had the privilege of studying in a school in Colombia that kind of supposedly mimic the, the system here. Um, that was not true. Um, that was very different. And <laughs> yeah. I think I was in awe at the beginning of like, just, oh, I'm, I'm hearing English all around me and being immersed in this other um, arena and this other world that I'd never known. And um, I consumed a lot of media that was in English when I was in Colombia. So I guess I, I assumed that it would be some sort of version of like, I don't know, one of the shows that I had seen. I have no uh -huh. idea what I expected. And it seems like I just can't imagine being that age and then navigating a new culture, a new language, a new school system, and then still figuring out a way to go to college after that. So <laughs> I can imagine that then they continue, that's a, that like, that feeling of it being completely different, continuing on in college too. So exactly. can you tell us a little bit about what college was like too for you? <laughs> exactly, you know, just feeling, I think um, because of that steep learning curve, I didn't get into a four-year school, I got into a two-year school and there was a lot of shame about that. Like people I knew were going into this like amazing schools. And I think that feeling has stayed on throughout my journey of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing enough. I am not, um, you know, I need to be on more extracurriculars. I need to talk to more people. I need to network. I need to, it's the constant catching up that kind of has stayed along the education journey. So yeah, it was, you know, learning um, how to write an admissions essay while learning English, how to write properly in English. <laughs> Uh, while also learning, um, you know, that I look different and people pointing that out very quickly and 
learning that I had an accent and learning that I, you know, stood out to people in different ways. And some people were okay with that. Some people were not okay with that. And so I think, um, you know, that has been true throughout my journey. Xenophobia has definitely been a part of it. And um, yeah, I mentioned that because sometimes we don't realize as I think as first gens that you know, our starting point is different than other people who might have generations of people going to the same school who have many like engineers and their families or things like that. That was not my experience. So I didn't really have anyone to that I can turn to who could understand what that experience was like. Um, and I know like other people have talked about this in your podcast and, and um, that is still true very much as an immigrant with the added of like the microaggressions about being an immigrant or being picked, you know, around that. Um, and so I think for me, it was just this constant battling of like, okay, how do I get into a four-year school? And then once you get into the four-year school, well, how, how do I get into grad school? And now what do I need to do? I mean, I remember, you know, working 30 hours a week um, and then going on a Friday afternoon because my school was like an hour away from where I live. So I had to drive in the middle of Atlanta traffic, which for people who know Atlanta traffic can be bad, not as bad as LA, but bad. Um, Friday afternoon to go volunteer at a lab in hopes that somebody would give me a recommendation letter. And that takes a lot of work. And I don't think that we realize how much work on top of figuring out what are the requirements, like the emotional labor that it takes, to get to the next level is really what, um, you know, eventually led to my burnout in um, getting to um, grad school. I, I had applied uh, because, I, again, the steep learning curve, you know, you're learning so many things at so many times and in different ways. And so you're trying to put it all together to fit in this nice package. Um, in an admissions letter, and how do I say all of this in a way that people can understand that relate and want to give me a scholarship or whatever it is that I'm trying to do. And so I actually applied. So I was still very interested in psychology and I applied to a bunch of PhD programs without knowing much of what that was like or what did I need to do or whatnot. I somehow got into McNair and that for me was like life-changing, like I was not very good about networking. I didn't know how to, um, but I was really good at finding resources. Like that was my lifeline. Like I found organizations to help me because I knew that that was their job. So it's like, you have to help me. <laughs> and um, McNair was certainly the case um, for me. Um, and, you know, my McNair advisor, uh, not my advisor, but the program director, wasn't um, very supportive. And in fact, kind of told me uh, upfront that I was kind of wasting my time. And Wait, the McNair <laughs> director? You know, it's interesting because I did a very similar program, the Mellon Mays program. And I had a director who was also not very supportive. And oof, I don't even want to get into it because I don't want to start drama, but it was, <laughs> I mean, he really did not do what he was supposed to do and did not help us out or encourage us or you know it's just 
I, I, I continue to be surprised that folks, some folks, not a lot, but some folks who hold these titles and positions that are supposed to be supporting and helping, um, you know, the next generation, and then they don't, or they're the opposite, they're discouraging. So I'm sorry, I like, I just jumped in, but I, 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 I think I recall you mentioning that before, and it continues to surprise me as if you're telling me for the first time right now. <laughs> well, and like, you've been, you've been in that position too, like, you can't even fathom doing that to somebody else right and so I think that has like driven my passion of like I need to be a mentor for other people because I didn't get that and um you know so I think that just kind of drives another area for me um and that's why I was saying McNair had a big impact that person um you know I don't know what was going on in their life and, and you know to this day I don't know where that was coming from but at, at the same time it's like that was not the deal breaker McNair continued to help me even through my grad school program. It paid for my tuition. It helped me in so many different ways and it became kind of my community without even realizing it. Um, so I think, you know, I'm so grateful for that program for that reason, but you know, there, it doesn't have to be McNair. It could be, like you said, the Mellon Mays. It could be so many other organizations that are out there. And it's a matter of sometimes of just like, really trying to find it um, that could be really helpful so that you're not just fighting through this race that you were not prepared for, that was not meant for you, that you have no tools for on your own because it can be so exhausting. And I think because I had been fighting my way through to get to grad school, oh, because I did apply to like 20 programs and I didn't get into any. I got into one master's degree and I was like, okay, disappointed and again the feelings of shame like oh I'm not good enough the self-worth the doubt and um you know that was probably what was best for me at the time because it allowed me to get connected to faculty who then actually became my recommendation letters for my next for the next time I tried and that presented a better case the second time around so I did um I took three years after my master's and was a school counselor for, for a little bit. Um, that was really fun. I really liked that job. And then I um, applied again to grad schools and I got into UCSB and I just could not believe it. Like somebody must have done, like must have had a mistake. They, they must have not. <laughs> Can I just pause for a minute? Yeah. Let's pause on that because that happened to me and I hear that same, what is it called? Um, that same voice in your head, lovely. <laughs> I'm like levels, you know, that same kind of like negative um, thought that comes up for a lot of us who are either first gen or immigrant students of someone made a mistake of I do not deserve this of I am not good enough. And I just want to like put a pause on that because I feel like this is something where again, it's going to re resonate for a lot of the listeners is one feeling like well if I apply I'm not going to get in and then if I don't get in then that's going to validate my feelings of like not feeling good enough and then if I try again and I get in it's a mistake um so yeah sorry I just oh I think that's so true yeah and I I I hear it so much and now people refer to it as like imposter syndrome and yes yes we all feel that imposter syndrome at different times in our lives but I think that hits you so differently when you're a person of color because you haven't had people to vouch for you we haven't had 
sponsors. We haven't had mentors. We haven't had people to guide us, right? So I think a rejection or a, a no hits a little different when you haven't had that validation that you really need at this point. Yeah. And one thing I want to add to what you said about it, sometimes, you know, we associate it with imposter syndrome is that I think it's, it's more than just imposter syndrome because it's, it's you're constantly being made to feel like you are not yeah. good enough. So it's not that you're just, you feel like you're a fraud and you're not good enough, but you constantly all the microaggressions, the setting in and of itself makes you feel like you don't belong. And that contributes to your feeling of, of, yeah, of not fitting in, not being good enough. And, you know, that even going back to what you said earlier, but that feeling of you're constantly playing catch up because people have generations of resources, which then ties back to why so many of us are so resourceful. And that, that's the strength and always reminding yourself like during that, that thought, the negative kind of loop in, in, in your head of I'm not good enough is reminding yourself, actually, I am actually it's the strength actually I'm resourceful actually I'm resilient and that hopefully helping you to move to the next step so totally <laughs> not sure what you're gonna say next. no I appreciate <laughs> that because I think that kind of puts I think putting things into perspective too I was like it's not me it's the system the system is making me feel this way um but that's not necessarily an accurate picture right like and it's hard because when you're constantly being made to feel that way it's it's almost like I mentioned in a previous podcast episode, it's like gaslighting. It's like, yes. wait, am I, am I the only one feeling this way? Like, am I the only one hearing this? What this person said, that's offensive, you know, oh <laughs> or God. this person telling me that I should quit or whatever the negative, you know, messages that you're getting. Yeah. So true. And I think, I think we also think, okay, so what's the next thing that I need to get done, right? Like what comes next? What comes next? And then you think when you get to the next step, it's going to be better. And I think, I don't know, for some reason that reminds me of like the feeling of like, oh, when I get to the US and I get to study, like it's this dream. But then when you get there and it's not like that, that's heartbreaking. Like that's really, you know, kind of has like that grief piece to it of like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, I had an advisor who I had hoped to be my champion, who I had hoped to be my mentor, my guide. And that was that could not be farther from the truth. Um, and so a lot of my time in grad school became, how do I strategize around this person? How do I overcome this yet another obstacle? Um, and that comes, that comes at a, at a toll, like that amount of emotional labor, like you said, convincing myself constantly, like, no, I do belong here. No, I am good enough. Um, that constant belonging, that takes a toll on your body, that takes a toll on your mental health. And that certainly was the case for me in my third year of grad school. I had my mental health really, really tanked. And I, I just, you know, I, I didn't know how else I could go forward. I, did, I really didn't know. I knew I wanted to go forward. I knew I didn't want to drop out. I knew that I just want to get to the other side, but I really had like no energy in me left um, to keep fighting and um, can I ask you though I'm sorry to interrupt like at, at what point did you realize that you were burnt out because you said it it happened in your third year but I'm sure that was built up up to that so I'm wondering like at what point did you start getting burned out at what point did you realize it and then 
yeah what helped you kind of like navigate that because clearly you finished you're a doctora now <laughs> yeah <laughs> finally yeah. um yes i think that's such a good question because sometimes when you're burned out you don't recognize it right and nobody's really going to tell you hey i think you're burned out like i think that's not the, the rule right so um what what was um what i remember of that like like, okay, this is not normal, was um, I was just trying to be everything for everyone. And, you know, at the time, because I'm in psychology, we carry uh, clinical caseloads. So I had clients that I was carrying as well, while teaching, while mentoring, while also attending classes, while trying to, you know, graduate. Um, and in what really kind of resonated with me is like, I had no energy for anything like everything seemed like a struggle like brushing my teeth was a struggle um so sometimes that again that idea of energy is like if you're noticing that you have the little things the little tasks are becoming such a burden um i think that is a really big sign and the other part of it too is the apathy is it's for me it wasn't as much as apathy but i know that that's one of the um ways that it can feel it was more like nothing will ever get better nothing will ever get better for me nothing will get ever get better for the people that i'm helping no matter what i do the system is always going to crash me right and um so i think those two things were kind of like okay i think this you know it should i should not i should not I, you know i should be showering like that should be a thing right <laughs> like, um, you know, this is a normal. And so I ended up um, seeking out obviously therapy and I still remember my therapist at the time who was fantastic. She was like, I think you need a break. And I looked at her like she was crazy. Like, I don't understand what you're trying to tell me. Why would I need a break? Like, how can I be taking a break if I'm trying to graduate? And she um, really helped me kind of learn that that was okay and i think it took that conversation of like you can rest you're entitled to rest you have the right for that um you have the right to rest that can you really say that again over yeah. and over and over again you have the right to rest and you know what the way i think about it is oh my gosh my ancestors my grandparents mm. my parents they have fought tooth and nail for me to get to this point and it is not for nothing. If anything, they have given me the privilege to, at this point, be able to say when I need to rest. And I do it sometimes for thinking about them, you know, like that's how I, like I have permission to rest. And that was really helpful. I think from there I learned more of like, oh, okay. So, you know, I don't have to go a thousand miles an hour. I can um, decide what rest looks like for me too, because I think sometimes people think like, I go on vacation for two weeks a year and that's enough. I'm like, no, it's not enough. Um, so yeah, it's the determining to what, what rest looks like for you, what what is helpful was, was good. I feel like what, what you just said was so powerful about needing someone else to tell you that you're allowed to take a break, that you're allowed to rest. Um, that is huge because especially in like the culture of academia taking a break taking a leave resting 
is not encouraged, whether it's resting by setting firm hours on when you're working or resting by taking a vacation. It's like, what? How dare you take a vacation <laughs> when you are a student or an academic of any any form? And I hear that time and time again, not just among undergrads who are doing research. They're like, no, I can't take time off because my my faculty mentor won't let me. I need to do X number of lab hours to then grad school. No, I can't take time off. I'm sure you felt this way too, because I have this milestone and this thing and this thing, all these like, um, uh, como se llaman, like hurdles that you're constantly having to meet. And if you don't do it, then there will be some sort of um, repercussion, negative repercussion. And then people get to their careers and they're putting their life on hold. They're like, no, I can't take a break from going on the job market because then I'm not going to be as competitive and I'm not going to get that job and whatever this like what if idea of like if I don't keep going I'm going to lose out on these opportunities and then people put their life on hold they, they, they say I'm not going to have kids or I'm not going to do this I'm not going to do that I'm not going to travel and I I'm here for like telling everybody and their mama that it's okay <laughs> to take a break and that it yeah. can not only instead of hurting you, it can actually help you. You can come back stronger. So sorry, I had to go on around I, yet again, but everything you're saying, I feel like I just wanna keep like echoing it and putting it out there. And I think the, that message is coming out. I'm hearing it more and more now, which is great. More people are trying to make napping a thing. I still can't nap, I try, but I can't. I'm not the greatest napper. Like, oh, I wish I could. <laughs> I try and I can't. So it's, it's, it's wild how that, how deep that like deeply ingrained that feeling of constantly having to be on and productive and do work and how hard it is to unlearn that. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, going back to this, this topic of burnout, you were in your third year, you kind of I had a question earlier when you were describing burnout and how it manifested in you how then did you distinguish it from other forms of mental health um, issues or because uh, I know for for some people like for instance for myself I did struggle and navigate it through um, severe postpartum depression when I was a graduate student because I had my son in grad school and it was hard for me when I was depressed I actually I struggled to brush my teeth too and I I had days where I felt like kind of what you said nothing will ever get better like, why am I doing this? There's no purpose in me doing what I do. Um, and so because for me, those feelings were more associated with depression rather than burnout. How do you distinguish between the two? You know, I think that's such a good question. And I'm trying to like think about how do I want to answer this in a way that's like thoughtful. Um, you know, I think a psychologist, not that I am one yet, but um, and training soon to be, training, soon to be. <laughs> yes uh, the next hopefully the next four months but um you know in the dsm which is what we use to look at different diagnostics um burnout is not a diagnosis it oh interesting adjustment disorder, uh -huh. that is a diagnosis um that would be under mm -hmm. for me how it presented is that was depression there was a depressive episode um, and it was concluded oh. with anxiety as well. And so I think at the end of the day, it's, it's like, 
the way I think about it is this, is it burnout? Is it depression? I don't really know. Right. Mm -hmm. But I know that something has to give. I know that I can't keep going in the way that I'm going because clearly it's, it's taking a toll on my mental health and my physical health, because once your mental health tanks, your physical health also goes along. It's kind of like they both go hand in hand. So I would think about it from that perspective um, of, I need, that's, that's just a signal that, you know, you need more support at that point. And I think that's, that's really helpful that you said burnout is not in the DSM. So burnout in and of itself can manifest in different ways. And the ways that it manifests could also be part of maybe you're struggling with depression or anxiety or some Mm -hmm. other thing. Um, But I wanted to also ask you, one is, um, what do you do now to make sure that you don't get burnt out or to try to, if you start to feel like it's coming on, to try to just nip it, (laughs) you know, like to prevent it. And also, what do you wish you would have known in grad school that you could have done, um, you know, when you were struggling? I think um, it's a, it feels like a full-time job at times, honestly, it really does. And I'm getting better at catching it before it happens. So I think one is like, if you recognize the signs, I think that's a little bit easier. Um, you know, again, like the idea of energy for me was really what stood out if of like, oh, well, like, yeah, I haven't been showering. I'm not brushing my teeth. Like that's, that's not normal. Right. So, um, trying to catch it before it's like the, the ideal. So that's one, two, it's, you know, how do you do self-care? And I know it's like such a cliche word at this point, but how do you care for yourself? on a daily basis. Like, I don't want you waiting for your two weeks or for your one week vacation out of the year. Like, what are you doing on a daily basis to disconnect? And um, from, you know, whatever stressor that you're facing. And then the other part that I was, that I was wanting to mention too, is like having um, hobbies or having activities that build your confidence. Um, that restore your faith in humanity because I think that was another thing I had to cut down on news I had to really look at what kind of media I was consuming trying to look at pictures of puppies or uplifting things because they really kind of balance that worldview and like that's what happens after you know you have a period of like stress is good to a certain extent when it comes to a point where it's like too much you know, and you're in that state for prolonged periods of time, that's what leads to burnout, which if you stay in that way, that could actually lead to trauma. So it is really important that you are trying to develop, you know, kind of strategies that you have for yourself that are going to be on a daily basis to prevent it from happening. And then as soon as you notice that, um, you know, making sure that you're seeking mental health, if that's what you need, or even just, I think the other piece that is not often talked about is community, like creating community. Who is in your community that can lend you support? And for me, that has largely been my family. And, you know, I just want to mention this, like the more education that I got as as I was moving forward in my education, I noticed there was a gap that was creating between my parents and me because they didn't understand my career. They didn't understand what I was doing. And so how could you call home and say that you're not feeling well if your parents don't even understand it, right? And so the best piece of advice that I received was bring them along. 
share everything you're, you're learning, call them, tell them what your day was like, explain about Professor X, tell them your, you know, your classmates' names, um, because then if it does happen, you know, you can call them and they'll have context and they'll be better able to support you. So those are like things that I do that have been helpful for me and like navigating burnout. Oh my gosh. I love, I love that. So I, I feel like um, if anybody's listening and is a current undergrad or grad student struggling with burnout, I'll, you just named a bunch of really, really helpful things from trying to catch it on before to developing kind of a daily practice ritual of like taking care of yourself to to building community and if it's family because for a lot of us especially immigrant students or children of immigrants family can be a big um big thing for us um a big support system for us and i love that you said bring them along i don't even think i intentionally realized that i was doing it in grad school with my mom but i would have conversations with her especially about people <laughs> and That's i remember good. my first advisor was so toxic and i'd be like esta señora esto y esto y otro you know like this person this lady would do this and this and this and yeah. she was so mean to me and then my mom would be like mija Le voy a prender una veladora. Like I'm gonna light her a candle, and oh my gosh, I I do think that they yes, it does. It does because then you're not yeah. alone, and I think that yeah. that's part of the burnout is you feel mm -hmm. alone in this like misery. And you know, if you have connections to like other positive aspects, then mm -hmm. it's a lot harder for you to get to that like really low place. So I love that you did yeah. that with your mom. That's amazing. I used to have like cafecito with my mom and like would um, try like my, uh, I did a qualitative dissertation. I would mm -hmm. try the protocol with her to see if it would work. And she would like, ask questions and, you know, they loved it and I loved it and, and it helped us connect better too. Yeah, so, yeah. I love that too for you. Um, I think this is a great way to kind of start to wrap up the, the podcast episode. I just want to ask you one, well, technically two more questions. So the, the second to last question is, is there anything else that you feel that you want to share about the topic of burnout or any last kind of final thoughts around the topic? Mm, no, just um, again, getting, making sure that you're building confidence outside of your work. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the other thing I didn't say is you mentioned the hobbies you mentioned. Oh, you mentioned getting involved in things um that restore your faith in humanity oh that's that's huge not just for grad school but like for life right. <laughs> so i love that um and then the next question the last question is if folks resonate with what you shared and you know want to follow you reach out be in touch connect in some way how can others reach you um, so I am on social media at Dr. Gina Venegas, and that is um, Dr. D-R-G-I-N-A-V-A-N-E-G-A-S, because it's usually misspelled because other people from other countries spell it like Venegas, but it's Vanegas. Vanegas, yeah. And which social media um, are you uh, on? Because you mentioned social media. I'm assuming IG because I have you on IG, but is there any other? Um, I am accounts? on TikTok. I am sharing um, more videos. Um, so if you want to learn more about what strategies I use to get to this point, that's kind of what I'm doing with TikTok. Um, I, so right now, mainly Instagram, LinkedIn, and um, TikTok. 
Okay, I will make sure that I link this on the show notes so that way they have your your different um, social media accounts. Thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Thank Tina. You. I loved catching up, hearing yeah. more about your some parts. I was like, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> for creating the space it's so needed i'm so happy that there's other people who are learning from all of us that, who have already been through this journey so yeah. thank you for creating it thank you thanks so much for joining me in the grad school fem touring podcast if you liked what you heard please rate this podcast on itunes spotify or anywhere you tune in You can also support the podcast by donating to my Patreon page, Anchor page, or Venmo account, which is at Grad School Fem Touring. If you have questions or episode topics, you can contact me by sending me a DM on Instagram, sending me an email to gradschoolfemtouring at gmail.com, sending me a voice message on Anchor, or sending me a message via my personal website at yvettemartinezvu.com. Until next time.